Hello and welcome to the Industry Leaders Podcast. I'm Sarah Goldboyle and on the show with me today is Giles Mountford, Drinks Marketing Manager from Hall and Woodhouse. Now, Giles has just led a complete brand refresh and when I say complete, I really, really mean it, so we'll have to hear more about that later. But first things first, Giles, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. No, we're really, really delighted to have you. So you have, I think it's fair to say, a slightly more complex business model than maybe we normally have. So I wonder, could you just explain to us a bit about Holland Woodhouse and how Badger and the Outland brands both fit into it? Yes, of course. So Holland Woodhouse as a business has been around since 1777, the same year that uh, America was founded. So it's in sort of top 20 oldest companies in the world, believe it or not. And since its inception, it has served beer to the masses, effectively. So Charles Hall was a farmer who saw an opportunity and began brewing beer for soldiers in the Napoleonic Wars, effectively. And that is where the Badger beer brand came from. You know, a long time ago, public houses were exactly that, somebody's house. And to denote the fact that they sold beer in Dorset, they would hang a picture of a badger outside. So people knew when they were walking past, they could come in and get a drink, which was important because brewing beer was a way of making water safe to drink in the same way that in the Far East tea is so important. It was to deal with water that was non-potable, really. So the Badger brand, if you could call it that, in the first instance, has been around for an incredibly long time. On the back of that and those public houses, the business grew by launching its own public houses, its own pubs, or as we call them, just our houses. And so now it runs as both a hospitality business, where we have around 56 managed properties across the south of England, and about 110 tenanted pubs, again, all across the south of England, all the way from Woolacombe in Devon to uh, Parliament Square in London. And it runs as that hospitality business, but also with the brewery still as a core tenant and we say the golden thread that runs through the business and we brew our beers exclusively for our estate so you can't buy them in the free trade or in other people's pubs and that allows us to really keep a good eye on the the quality particularly around cask beer which doesn't always travel well and needs a certain amount of love care and attention to be served as well as we would like it to be and what about outland then what is that and when did that come into play so traditionally, Badger beers have been what you would call cask ales in the on-trade or premium bottled ales in the off-trade. So the brown beers, as it were, rather than lagers or anything else. Now, cask beer has been sort of declining for some time, which is you know a macro trend related to the demographics of the country and drinking habits and all sorts of other things. And that obviously affects the premium bottled ale or PBA market in the off-trade as well. So in 2022, there was a decision made to look at the category, to understand the consumer better and to look for a new way forward. And that's not to say that we don't still love making our cast beers. We're really, really proud of them. You know, they win lots of awards. And the PBA market, like I say, in the off-trade is still really, really big. But with that sort of trended decline, there was a point where we had to say, well, okay, well, what's next? Where can growth come from? And really, the obvious answer to that was in, in the craft beer sector, which has shown such massive growth over the last sort of 10 or 15 years. And Outland is our entry into that category and in fact our first new brand in 247 years I suppose. Yeah that's amazing that's really exciting so you were involved in kind of the launch of Outland is that right? Yeah absolutely so we started with the insight it was really really important to get a good handle on um, our customers and our guests but also the category customer as well because we can't just sell 
to the people that already like Badger. And that was a really key piece to think about because I think it was very easy to just focus on that minority as it were. Now, the beer category is huge and beer drinkers are quite promiscuous across subcategories. So they will drink lager, they will drink ale, they will drink craft, they will drink, you know, even cider as well. So there's an opportunity there to not just focus on that very, very narrow band of customers. And as I'm sure you've talked about this podcast before, penetration is key to brand growth and thinking in those terms allows us to speak to a much larger target audience and potentially grow that penetration. Mm. Okay, so we've kind of got the picture. We've got the heritage brand. We have kind of the traditional cask beer drinkers. Could you maybe tell me when you were kind of starting off in this whole brand refresh, you know, the relaunch and everything, what was it really important for you to get right? What were the kind of the customers you wanted to be talking to? How did you want to talk to them? How were you able to be confident that what you were going to do was going to be effective? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And my short answer would be, I didn't go into it with any idea of exactly what those answers would be. We needed to run a deep piece of research and really dig into the insight and let that drive where we took the brands. Now, my background is around insight and research. I spent six years with Dunhumby, who run Clubcard for Tesco, and then some time with Amia and uh, a couple of other agencies. And so for me, that always underpins everything that we do. We have to understand the consumer as tightly as possible. As soon as you sign that contract to work for someone, you are slightly tainted by your view because you are surrounded by this brand, surrounded by the information, bombarded by it. And we can forget that the consumer or the guest in the pubs actually doesn't have any of that information. So the research was really, really important. And we did two big pieces. We did a brand audit that was specific to Badger, where we talked to our current consumers, but also category consumers. And again, it was good to get that balance because otherwise you just get a positive result, as it were, because you're asking people that already know and like your brand. And we also worked with the IGD, who are obviously a big research agency in the off-trade, and did probably the biggest piece of certainly ale and perhaps beer research in recent years to understand the category more broadly. And those two pieces together were really, really key because we need to answer the question from a consumer perspective, from a retailer perspective, from a brand perspective, and not just within the product and the packaging, but also the customer journey and the way that they interact with the category in store. If you don't answer one of those questions, then there's a gap in that journey And that's where you can begin to lose consumers. So we were really key on focusing on those. And the outputs fell into three areas, really. One was to celebrate cask and PBA and take the learnings from this insight to revitalize and refresh our range. The second was about twisting into growth, which was moving into that craft area and understanding that we had the permission to play in that category, if that makes sense. And the third was about, like I say, this customer journey. So dealing with merchandising, communications, and trying to bring the retailers on the journey with us. Because again, they are selling our products for us. If we could do everything right, and if they are just placing them in a way that doesn't work for the consumer, it's not going to work. So you have to try and line up all these areas so that the sum of the parts is greater. Yeah, okay. There's loads there that I want to talk about. So let's start with the permission to play and twisting into growth. What does that actually mean? Well, I think it's fair to say Hall & Woodhouse and the Badger brand, they've been around for 247 years. We're a small to medium-sized business. We're relatively traditional. And that's very different to where most craft brands come from, certainly in the minds 
of a lot of consumers. You know, they see the founder-led, passionate, small, nimble brewery that starts, you know, in a shed or under some railway arches and is going up against the big guys and, and then carves out its own niche. And so what we didn't want to be was sort of... Um, dad dancing in that category as it were pretending to be something that we're not because I think consumers see through that kind of thing you can't falsify quality and credibility and so we wanted to be very sure that this was the right thing to do there's always opportunity whether you should go after it whether it's right for you as a business is of course another question to add to that when we touched on more craft-like products in previous years before I arrived the feedback particularly from sort of buyers etc had been a little bit we're not sure about Badger as a craft brand. We're not sure consumers will accept this. So there was already this slight reticence, I suppose, internally on whether we should do this. However, as I alluded to before, the research and the insight really put that to bed because, again, it's one of those things as brand owners, we think about our brands a lot and we think consumers think about our brands a lot. And a lot of the time they don't. They know what they like, they know what they don't like. And we try and carve out a little bit of space in their lives, but they've got far more important things going on, it's fair to say. So, like I say, we investigated all of that. We had no feedback from consumers saying, we don't think you should do this. It doesn't feel right. And on the back of that, we decided that it was something that we could go for. You will see on the cans that while the brand is called Outland, we do say from the Badger Brewery, because again, we didn't want people to pick it up and then find out separately that it was from Badger, from Hall and Woodhouse and feel like they'd been somehow cheated or we were pretending to be something we're not. And similarly, we're proud of our heritage. We're proud of our brewing credentials. And without putting the Badger Brewery on the can, it is a brand without a home. It has no anchor point. And so finding that balance between a sub-brand versus an endorsed brand, etc., was really, really important and one that drove a lot of our decision-making in the first weeks. And then once you had kind of made that decision to move into that kind of growth phase and you kind of came down to the actual nuts and bolts of the rebranding, what was important for you to kind of capture in that rebrand? I actually think that your products are really, really eye-catching. I really like the designs in them and they don't look like they're something out of a heritage brand. Yeah. So you've really moved away from that identity. Yeah, that's kind. Thank you. Like I said, there's two parts. Is that the Badger refresh in some ways was more difficult because you're dealing with something that already exists that people have a love and affection for. And, you know, we're still a fully independent family owned business. One of our biggest beers was brewed by the father of a non-exec who's still on the board. So it's not just a fully commercial decision for everything that we do. We have to balance it with that piece as well. But that's also what makes us unique. It's rare that anyone is fully independent these days, aside from the little guys. Uh, Certainly some of the bigger players don't exactly allude to the fact that they're semi-owned or fully owned by some sort of big multinationals but there's not much independence left in that area so what do we want to do well you know we had some clear outputs from both the brand audit that was specific to badger and also the category piece and they were very aligned the category's been around a long time and you're bound to get common themes running through all of it and what we found particularly from lighter buyers is that they were kind of put off by the complexity and how hard it was to decode packaging. They didn't really understand styles or taste profiles. The dark bottles make it hard to understand what's going to be in the bottle. You know, we're very visual creatures. And if we can see something that's light colored versus something that's dark colored, and we want something light and refreshing, we will take the color as a cue for that. And also the product offering, people were concerned about strong flavor, uh, heavy texture, even the 500 mil as a size is quite large. And that's a barrier to trial. And like I said before, the merchandising, people found the bay 
very hard to navigate and described it as a, a mass of brown bottles. So thinking about all those areas, it's like, how can we answer those questions? So the basis of the rebrand wasn't, okay, what can we do that looks great, that's really fun, that's cool or anything like that? We were answering specific questions from the consumer. And that was to make the bottles more unique and engaging, to bring some vibrancy to what's a fairly muted category, and to really bring clear signposting. So you'll see on the new bottles, we're very clear on the product name, the product style, and also at the bottom, some really clear tasting notes, which are written with the consumer in mind. So we don't lean in too heavily to the exact hops and the way the beer was brewed and then ask them to translate that into what they think it'll taste like. We tell them it's going to taste of hints of elderflower or, you know, with moorishly hoppy notes. It's really, really sort of clear and concise. And then we can go into more detail on the back for those that are really interested. So it's finding that balance and taking away those barriers to trial and thinking more broadly than just our industry and people that are really into these beers. Hmm. Sometimes heritage brands can find it difficult to kind of balance their history and their brand identity with this kind of push towards innovation and creativity. How have you found that balance and how did you bring the stakeholder team along the journey with you? Yeah, it's a really difficult question and really hard thing to do. The way I think about it is that our heritage is who we are. It absolutely underpins everything that we do, but we also don't want it to be an anchor. And we also have to consider how much of it is really, really engaging to consumers. In starting this piece of work, obviously looking at a lot of competitors and a lot of their websites, every single ale story starts with, we've been brewing since 1880, 1920, 2010. It's not something you can actually really own. So it's not always a point of differentiation within the category, but it is still important. So the way we sort of think about it is to say, we all like historic houses. We all want to live in a nice period property, but we'd really like double glazing and central heating. So it's about taking the architecture of the past, but updating it in a way that we can build on for the future. And finding that balance uh, it isn't always easy. And like I say, if you go back to the research that allows you to make decisions based on what consumers need and want, and then it, there's just a lot of hard work in the briefing and the creative to bring that to life in a way that is both contemporary, but also pays homage to our history and everything that's come before. Mm. And did you ever have a moment where you were worried that you were losing a bit of that brand identity and that heritage? You always worry. If you don't worry, you probably don't care enough. And as I say, you know, we did get some, like I say, pushback from some customers that have been with us for a while. But you have to take that on the chin. No one's going to like everything. We all read the papers. They love a story about a big brand getting a, a refresh wrong and all that sort of thing. So you know it's coming and that it's not always easy. But like I say, I stand by the insight and what will that do for the brand, but also the business commercially? It's important to balance those two things and not just do it for the sake of it because it looks cool or because it's fun or whatever. This is about selling more beer. This is about building a brand for the future. And if you always keep that in mind and when you're presenting and when you're thinking about how you take this internally and to your buyers, that then is a much more compelling argument. You know, what will this do? for the brand, for the business in the future, not just for the brand in some sort of slightly nebulous way. 
I really like your analogy of the period house with the double glazing. Yeah, I like an analogy. And again, for storytelling, even internally, and I don't buy into a lot of the, the modern jargon about storytellers or with chief joy officer or all that sort of stuff, because I think it's just, it's euphemisms really, isn't it? But you need to take people on a journey, both across a long period of time and within whatever presentation or, or paper that you're writing. And I've been caught out a couple of times using marketing speak and being sort of too detailed in that way and you know that goes to the finance director or the md and they just go you know what is this you need to be able to talk other people's language and, and make it really really clear and i found in my career that analogies can work quite well i think having started like i say at dunhumby and working with lots of different clients everyone from the royal opera house to nestle and dealing with relatively sort of complex ideas within the, you know the, the insights and the uh, the analysis that we would do for them you had to be able to give them the core nuggets as it were the details are really important but what's the headline what's the key takeout from all of this because we are awash with data with insight with everything and being able to cut through that is actually really really difficult part go back a few years and getting the data getting the insight was really hard but now there's thousands of agencies scraping data from all across the internet from all across sales packaging it up repackaging it cutting it working with it and trying to understand that and where you can get real insight and real answers from isn't always easy i think Mm, yeah absolutely (laughs) that's the idea the eternal problem isn't it well yes too much of a good thing maybe yeah And actually, did you write the copy in-house or did you get an agency for that? So we work with a really good design and packaging agency called Robot Food, who are based up in Leeds. They did the core packaging, the core copy, tone of voice, brand guidelines, etc. They've got some good experience within the beer market. They were quite challenging when we were sort of talking through the initial concept, which is what I want. I'm not a creative. I don't want an agency to do what I say. I want them to challenge, to translate, to be the experts. You know, in the same way, I go to the garage and I tell the mechanic what noises my car's making. I don't tell them to put X, Y, and Z parts on it. I have to trust them to be the experts. And I think trusting people to be experts, both within your team, business, agencies, is really, really important, especially these days when there is so much to know. You know, as a marketer, we deal with finances and creative and insight and team management and a whole swathe of things. And you can't be an expert in all of them. You know, Meta changed their search and targeting algorithms almost weekly. So you haven't got a chance. You need a digital expert that can stay on top of that as best as they can. And and as a leader, you need to know that you can trust that person and give them the space to do that and to work. And uh, I think that's the only way to do it. Mm. And how do you go about building out that kind of team then of all these kind of separate, that must have a challenge in itself, kind of having your very lean in-house team and then like multiple other agencies who maybe are telling you different things. How do you figure out what's right? I mean, it's a big question. Try and think of my agency as an extension of the team. That's really key. And if I have a new agency or we're briefing on something new, I will overtly say the sort of things I said to you just now. You know, this is the information we've got and how I've put it into a brief. I want you to bring your expertise and your thoughts and ideas as well and challenge me if I'm saying diametrically opposed things in one section or another. If it's trying to do too much and we'll end up doing none of it, I want people to challenge me and to say that. If that's different to the team, then we'll have a discussion. What do I want? I want us to do the absolute best work possible. If that means saying, I was wrong about something or we have to do a U-turn or whatever it might be, then, you know, I'm comfortable with that. We have to be agile and we have to be robust, as it were, in uh, how we feel about work and and, and what we do. There's no place for for ego, 
I think that's really, really important because otherwise you might saddle up to a new business and go, right, let's change everything because I'm trying to prove my worth, as it were. But your worth is much more important if you continue with something that is getting some traction and consumers are beginning to understand. There's a time for change, absolutely. But if you're not bored to the back teeth with your marketing, then you've not been doing it enough. Just because we, again, we see it every day. We see our taglines everywhere. You know, you close your eyes and they're stamped on the inside of your, your eyelids. But the chances are the consumer might have seen it once or twice. So again, you've got to step out of your your bubble and try and think of it from the other side. Yeah, I so strongly agree with that because it's so tempting, isn't it, to kind of change your campaign after two months because you, you're just sick of it. But you're so right on that last bit. Yeah, what are we here to do? We're here to create brands and build a customer pool for future sales, let's say. The key word is sales. That's what businesses thrive on. And that's what our ultimate goal always has to be. You know, we're past the era of cheap borrowing. We're past the big financial crisis. We're out of that time where there was less accountability through you know the technology that was out there you know we have to be accountable and we have to make sure that what we're doing is something positive for the business from both a brand and a commercial perspective and I think that's really important in modern day marketing. Yeah and I find craft quite an interesting category because you know you have your classic craft drinker who maybe has a mandolin and you know that he's that kind of person who's not necessarily actually your main consumer group I imagine. But for someone who's kind of curious and maybe wants to explore a little bit, how do you convince them to pick up an Outland beer and not a Brewdog? Because you've got those big, big hitters in your market, which is quite challenging, I imagine. I guess that's the million dollar question for any marketer in in any category, unless you're the the leader. And the craft category is Brewdog. They are about 60% of that category. And so the mental awareness that consumers have of that brand is absolutely massive. The first thing to do is, again, to think about the consumer. Like I say, we've got our Badger brand, which is our more traditional ales, and that is one consumer. And Outland is for a different consumer, a different occasion. And we have to think about it differently. So the real key to what we're trying to achieve with Outland is to be a category entry point, really. Craft is mainstream now. It really is. I have a couple of slides in some of my decks that say this is not our consumer. And it is that sort of cliched craft drinker, you know, beard and tattoos and, and whatever else. The average craft drinker is 40 to 55 years old, ABC one, slightly wealthier, etc, etc. It's really quite standard. It's Mr. Friday night shopping in Tesco. It doesn't get much more mainstream than that. And that's fine. And that again, due to the category life cycle, that meant that we could insert ourselves in a credible way because it's at that sort of mainstream time. And so what we've done with the brand and the packaging is maintain those category cues around design and colour. But just like the PBA, we've made them really, really simple to understand. So all our beers are named what type of beer it is. We have a West Coast IPA. We have a hazy IPA. And below that on the can, you have three tasting notes front and centre. So it's really, really simple to understand. And then the ABV. Because these are the things that were brought up as barriers to trial. People were concerned that they would pick something up and not like it. And you're spending £3, £3.50 on something these days. That's a problem. They were concerned that they're going to pick something up, have one can and fall over because they hadn't realised it was 8 or 9%. And so we put the ABV front and centre. And we again, we talk in a language which is about the person in the street, not the person in the forum. That's the mindset that we try and keep. 
I think as an industry, we can be a little inward looking sometimes and think about what we know and how we understand beer. And that's not the consumer. In fact, when we did a, another sort of small piece of research, when we were looking at our SEO, we found that the most Googled beer terms are all questions. What is an IPA? What is a stout? Because people just don't have that knowledge and take a step back to understand that and then work to help the consumer is really important. It's exactly what Outland is about. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of a point that you've brought up in different ways a couple of times. So you've spoken about like how marketers can be kind of really saturated in a brand and you see the brand around you every day. There's that thing of kind of being in an industry and just you think about that industry the whole time. So that's obviously something that you're really, really aware of. And you've spoken before about being the stupidest person in the room. (laughs) Tell me a bit about that because I like that term. Yeah, exactly. It's about, you know, just saying you are not the customer which should be written in big letters above every marketing department in the country, really. You've always got to take yourself away from your desk, out of the brewery, out of the factory, whatever it might be, and say, what is my consumer thinking? How are they understanding this brand? How are they understanding this category? And how can I help them? And the more you know about a brand or your product, the harder that becomes, because you begin to assume that people know stuff. And it's highly subconscious. But unless you make an active sort of decision, like say, to be the stupidest person in the room, then I think it's a really easy trap to fall into. Mm, Yeah, for sure. And how have customers reacted to the brand refresh? What have you heard from them? So for the Badger refresh, it's been really positive, particularly from, like I say, those lighter buyers, those people who are not sort of hardcore Badger fans already, which is exactly what we wanted. There was obviously some pushback, should we say, from perhaps some of our more traditional customers or those who've been with the brand a long time, which is never easy. But again, I preempted this with internal stakeholders in the board and said, look, we will get some pushback on this. And if we don't, then we'll know that we haven't actually pushed this brand refresh far enough and we'll be in the same position in two or three years time. So managing those expectations was as important as getting the brand out there really. So yeah, really positive. For example, Waitrose now stock all of our beers brand blocks together, which we haven't had for a decade. And when you consider the most powerful thing that drives uh, the sort of buying decision is the constant multi-buy in this category, having your brand together, you know, with this increased vibrancy, etc., that's going to really, really help people just pick up one more of our beers within those four that they choose. So that's been really positive. On the craft and outland side, we obviously did some testing of the packaging before going live. And again, it answered those questions, those barriers to trial about the consumer understanding what it is that they would be buying. And people felt that it looked crafty and that it fitted within the category which is obviously important as well and on the back of that it's been a great success you know we've just gone live in tesco and up to sort of 450 stores with that which brings total sort of distribution to around two two and a half thousand stores across the country obviously we sell to our own estate and in swapping out the ipa that we made previously for our west coast ipa not terribly dissimilar products but very differently branded in the first six months we saw about 38 percent increase in in volume and that's because when you get to the bar you can understand what it is and you know you're not sort of put off by going I'm not sure what that is and Dave asked for an IPA but is that an IPA or is that something else it just makes it that decision making really really easy and that like I say has driven a lot of what we've done. Yeah, for sure. And can we talk a little bit about how you kind of find that balance between direct consumer sales through your wholesale and then also your hospitality? How can each of those channels support each other? Because I think in some businesses, it can be a little bit siloed. But because you're such a long standing business, I imagine you're fairly well knit at this stage. 
Yes, it's still a tricky one because the hospitality side of the business, what drives that is covers and food really is the sort of key profit driver. And so obviously they have a lot of focus on that and guest experience. And as a beer brand on the bar, we're just we're one part of everything that they do. So you always have to bear that in mind. We can't just go marching in with a big size tens and then do whatever we want because that wouldn't be right for the company as a whole but they've been incredibly supportive of both the badger refresh and outland and that's been really really nice to see because that kind of feedback has come from the floor up you know the guys behind the bar all the way up through the business where people have got really excited and really behind the brand and again it's what the guests had been asking for so in many ways it's a no-brainer you follow the market if there's an opportunity there let's take advantage of it Mm. and do you get much opportunity to bring your marketing team onto the you know i don't want to say the shop floor but like into the bar it's an opportunity it's the same old yes but should do more again it's just another way of collecting insight about your guests really and also how the team in the houses react and work with your products it's always difficult time-wise until recently we were a team of two people so you know running the day-to-day marketing also doing this full refresh launching a new beer brand in both the on and the off trade so we're lean it's fair to say that has its advantages in some ways you could be a little bit more agile but there was a lot to do and certainly i should get out more we should all be with our customers with our consumers as much as possible even if it's just sort of lurking in a slightly creepy way and seeing how they pick beers off the shelf or how they interact with you know the team behind the bar and their sort of decision making it's obviously anecdotal but it adds color to the sort of quantitative work that you've done previously and i think that's really really useful yeah, for sure. And am I right in saying that you recently launched your first uh, TV ad as well? So like, I mean, you've really, you've done everything. <laughs> yes. I was quite tired by the end of last year, but in a really good way. You know, what we achieved, not just as a marketing team, but across the business was incredible. And it really is a multifaceted piece. You know, we need the brewery to make great beers, which they do. We need the sales guys to sell it in. We need logistics to make it all work. And uh, I tried to never forget that. I can't act unilaterally. Uh, I can't sit in an ivory tower and go, we should do this, we should do that. When you're a business as complicated as ours with manufacturing and hospitality, you have to think of all the different areas. And that's really, really important for getting things through. Otherwise, they just are a bit pie in the sky. Mm, Yeah, for sure. So with that in mind, now that you've done this huge bit of work on the refresh, you've got it out into the world, it's in Tesco, it's in Waitress, it's all over. How are you going to drive this forward now? What's the focus on in the next year, let's say? Yeah, I think it's about consolidation. It is the the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end, effectively. It's great getting a listing in Tesco, but you've got to keep it. So we've got to keep rate of sale up and we've got to make sure that consumers are buying it within Tesco and within all these other stores as well. So really the key for us is that we dealt with the physical availability. We've got some good distribution. It's about building that mental availability so that when people are standing at shelf, they have some recognition of our brand. To your point about Brewdog before, why should they choose us over them, especially if they've not heard of us at all? So in some ways, it's quite an old school way of thinking about marketing but we need some awareness we need saliency and then we've got the physical availability pricing and promotion is out of our hands to some degree because obviously it's set by the retailers 
So we just need that little spark so that when you've got a customer in the white hot crucible of the BWS aisle on a, on a Saturday afternoon and they've got a toddler hanging off their leg and they're running out of parking and they've got split seconds to make a decision, they pick our beer because they have some idea of what it is. And again, to go back to the, the simplicity of the packaging and the communication, we want to think about the shopper as well as the consumer because they're not always the same person. And a really interesting little nugget that came out of our research said, if I go into store and I'm supposed to be buying a, a box of Peroni, for example, and they're all sold out, I feel comfortable in substituting that for another premium lager. But when it came to PBAs and craft as well, the same sort of feedback was, I don't know what to substitute something for if they don't have the thing that's on the list, because they were hard to decode and hard to understand. So again, with both brands, keeping real consistency across the products so that if we know someone likes the brand and one product's out of stock for whatever reason, they might be able to switch into another. So again, it's just thinking from a consumer's perspective, removing barriers and making that purchase easy, really. Mm. And do you find that your customers are open to try, you know, like say if I like an IPA, but I've never tried, you know, the brilliantly named Firsty Ferret. Yes. You know, say I've never tried that. Are they generally open to that or do they like what they like and they stick with it? Annoyingly, I would say they probably do both. People tend to have a sort of core favourite. So within the PBA category, like I say, that most supermarkets run a, a four for seven pounds. And the average basket tends to have a couple of favourites or three favourites and one slightly more interesting product because it gives them that opportunity to trial something. And again, that fits our sort of strategy within PBA where we have Thirsty Ferret and Golden Champion, which are our core products. They have the biggest distribution. They drive the most volume. We look at them as sort of cash cows. We work with them in quite a simple way. What we offer as a brewery within our other products is some of that interest and innovation that consumers said were missing from the PBA category. Having those bits allows us to meet two sets of consumer expectations. And one thing we really learned from the craft category, which is separate, but obviously there's crossover, is that newness is really, really important to these customers. You have to embrace churn effectively. Previously, we would panic when there was a potential for a D-list, as it were. But now that's sort of part of the life cycle of products. And that's why you see so much MPD, particularly come through craft. And we're trying to bring, obviously, some of that to craft because that's how we have to play. And that's great. But also to PBA, because that was one of the things that consumers said was missing from that category. And we have a great history of doing interesting and innovative beers. And last year, we launched a, a coffee stout called Master Stout, which has had great reviews and is selling really well. And it brings something new to that category. So we'll continue to do that. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because I mean, the reason that you are one of the oldest businesses, you know, going from the Napoleonic Wars is because it's a business that is innately innovative, you know, is kind of what I'm hearing, that you are brave enough to embrace that churn and try out those new products. Yeah. When you're having those discussions with stakeholders over brand and trying these new things, is there a culture of that kind of innovation? Or is it something that you as a team are always trying to bring in? Or how does it work? I think it's a really an interesting question. And I think it's something that perhaps had died off a little bit in recent years, perhaps due to, like I say, the downward trend in cask beers, which is what we were making. And so what it really needed was this bit of spark, this excitement to get that moving again, and not to bang on about it. But like I say, the research and the insight gave everyone the confidence that it was the right thing to do and that we could make it work. 
And also the market has changed a lot in, in the last decade. Like I say, craft beer has gone from almost nothing to an enormous category. And also what they've done is put the PBA category in stark relief. So suddenly you've got all this vibrancy and colour, all this innovation. It's, like I say, seen as a, a sort of slightly younger person's product. It's not so sort of dated and uh, old wood and, and all that kind of stuff, which sort of accelerates the way people look at, at other things. So, yes, but there's macro changes, there's internal changes, there's all sorts of things that drive that, but it's really, really key. And actually, when it comes to, to innovation, the other thing that's key is to not just think about liquids and beers. It's around packaging, it's around channels, could be even around categories, who knows? But it's something that has to be constant and has to keep running, because otherwise, by the time you realise there was an opportunity, it's already behind you. Yeah, for sure. And Jez, just before we wrap up, if I was to go out and uh, try one of your beers, which one do you recommend? Well, it depends on the occasion you're buying for, because again, we know that they're very different. If it's a more low energy sort of occasion, something within the Badger range, like I say, our classic Thirsty Ferret is an absolutely wonderful beer. The Master Stoke Coffee Stout, it's got great flavours of, like I say, coffee and toffee and is really, really interesting. A little bit more high energy than you might be in our Outland range, in which case the West Coast IPA that's just launched in Tesco is an absolute classic. West Coast IPA, you know, it's got that sort of citrusy, piney flavour. It's 5%, so it's not too strong. Wrong. Or if you're looking at something more sessionable, our hazy IPA is 4.2% and, and brings a bit more sort of fruit and, and mouthfeel. So there is something for everyone in the range, I think it's fair to say. If I was going to pick one, maybe the West Coast IPA, to be honest with you. Or if you come straight to our website, the peach lager we make is absolutely incredible. And uh, I had no real interest in it. It wasn't something I thought I would like at all. Then I tried some event and it was my drink for the entire event. It's so, so good. Uh, really, really refreshing. Got a beautiful aroma of peaches and there's no sickliness to it, if, which you might imagine. So it's an absolutely beautiful product and uh, yeah, we're hoping to see more of it in the future. Brilliant. Okay, so that's the Golden Glory. Yeah, well, we've got two. We've got Golden Glory, which is our peach PBA, which we've been making for 20 odd years. So we were very early to the, the peach trend, which is out there now. But we also under Outland make a pure peach lager, which is available on our website just to get that plug in there. Brilliant. Yeah, we always love a plug. Listen, Jazz, thanks so much. Uh, it was great talking to you. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Jazz Mountford, Drinks Marketing Manager from Hall and Woodhouse. This is a More Two podcast. We help over 100 direct consumer and retail brands just like you to harness their customer data and work smarter and more profitably. Join our teaching masterclass to see how you can bring your marketing, finance and product teams together to deliver reliable, scalable profit with confidence and without the jargon. That's it for now. So from me, Sarah Coboyle and all of us at More Two, take care and bye-bye.